This Quiercast podcast is brought to you by Ideas Digest. I'm Conrad. And I'm Matt. Each week, two optimistic Aussie blokes explore new (laughs) and challenging ideas outside of our echo chamber on our totally realistic quest to achieve world peace, maybe some personal enlightenment. Is that too much of an oversell? No, just roll the montage. Okay. I'm right and you're wrong. What are you talking about? Straight men enjoy gay sex. What? The Bible is extremely pro-abortion. Why the hell should I trust you now? Don't find me by what I do in bed. Do you think that kick us out? I've done psychedelics 150 times in my life. You still choose to ejaculate to that. Oh my god. You can have a wife and a girlfriend. This guy just gets your face. Rubs that in. Break your bias. Each week, anywhere you get your podcast, tune in. It's going to be an amazing time. Amazing. (laughs) Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is not church with john and nat turney everybody welcome back to the podcast this is not church with uh your host john and nat turney i'm nat and this is my brother john say hi john hello john i said say hi john you're supposed to hi, follow john. instructions thank you Sorry. if you can't Sorry. follow instructions um i don't even know what, what we're gonna do with you today it's just it's just gonna get bad but yeah, anyway, we, <laughs> we are here with the podcast that we call this is not church because if it was church you'd have left by now so uh we will, uh, we will not make any pretense, but we're glad that you're here. We have an awesome guest, and this is actually going to be, if you're listening to this, hopefully this will be our 100th, ep- John, 100 episodes. Can you believe it? <laughs> this is, are you having a hard time even hearing me? Yeah, you are. You're, you're, making, like, a, you're so, making a face like, what the hell is he talking about? So anyone, I mean, I hope this sounds better when we get this all edited, <laughs> but right now it sounds like I'm talking to Max Headroom. It really oh, does. Oh, cool. Well, maybe I should just do my best impersonation. I don't even remember what he sounds like. All I remember is a lot of glitching and a lot of weird video. This is Bradley Jersak. Bradley. Um, hey. Well, <laughs> hey. We are I'm glad to be here on your centennial episode. That's I know, right? And they said it wouldn't last. And by they, I mean us. We said it wouldn't last. If you've been around the podcast at all, you know, uh, you know, Dr. Brad Jersak, uh, author of awesome books like A More Christlike God, A More Christlike Way, A More Christlike Word, uh, Never to Be Underestimated, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, all kinds of other stuff. And what will probably prove to be the definitive book on deconstruction out of the embers, which is available, I believe, now in all the places where cool books are sold. Anyway, that's really that's really what we're here to talk about this evening. So we want to talk about the new book. We want to talk about Out of em- out of the Embers, having faith, right? In the wake of this thing that you have, I think you might be the first one to have dubbed it the Great Deconstruction. And I kind of like your take on that. You want to give us an opening salvo and kind of kind of get into that Great Deconstruction thing? Sure, yeah. I, I'm recognizing that we have this trendy word that almost makes me twitch, but it's covers a lot of territory and it's become so popular that uh, now the complex oh tendrils that reach out to include all sorts of stuff underneath this umbrella term um, really almost constitute a movement now. And so I was thinking about other movements in, in history uh, relative to Christianity, for example, the, the, the Great Reformation or the Great Awakening or the Second Great Awakening, but uh, other movements like the Enlightenment, for example, um, or even eras like modernity, post-modernity, all of that. This is now becoming like that because the the shift in 
Christian culture and practice has has so dramatically um, moved in the last twenty years, and then accelerated through, you know, the American scene and what it's become or devolved into, and then throw COVID on top of that, and suddenly you've got a massive amount of people who are in positive ways, deconstructing bad theology in, in traumatic ways, unraveling in their faith. And so it, it's, uh, it's all a little bit up in the air. But I wanted to address this from the point of view of that complexity. You know, I'm seeing things called deconstruction that are incredibly liberating. I'm seeing other things that are deeply traumatizing. I'm seeing a, a profound renewal of faith and a profound abandonment of faith and all of these under that same term. So I, I, um, that's kind of what I'm trying to address with this book in terms of not just the, the, the phenomenon of deconstruction, but the varying responses to it, everything from accusing it of just being backsliding to, you know, the what I call the pop deconstructionists are virtually wanting to burn everything down, you know. And I'm like, well, there's an opportunity here to remove constructs that have actually been harmful to faith. Um, so there's something much better going on than just arson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, I don't know, even a good bit of arson seems to be um, called for at times. I don't know, that, that's been my take. I mean, so, some of some people's experience calls for some inflammatory type of approach, I think. Oh, sure. I, but I'm thinking like, do I want to commit arson on your faith? Oh, no, of course, right. Or on something as precious, I think, as as whatever the gospel actually is, right? And so I think, yeah, let's... Let's uh, let's dismantle barriers to that and the things that are killing us. So yeah, in, in that case, I'd want to be ruthless, and I think God is. You know, this is where the language of fire in Scripture and in the Fathers and in George MacDonald is actually quite appropriate. It's well, burning down idols, frankly, you know. And so yeah. I regard Moses as the as the first great deconstructionist. When for sure, yeah. Well, so. Just kind of put a broader term on this. So, because I, I don't think the word deconstruction or de- anything like that was being used when I stepped out of the faith because of my discontent, say 30, 30 plus years ago. Yeah. But when, when would you, I, I'm not asking you to pinpoint a time or an exact date, but when do you feel like this, the great deconstruction started as like, I mean, most decon- most of these movements seem to start probably prior to where we actually recognize it, right? So, where I mean, if you were to put like a a, a generic time frame on this this movement, which we are now calling deconstruction, where would you say it actually kind of began? Well, that's a really good question. It's a difficult question. Um, yeah, because I am reaching back in the middle section of my book. I'm looking at some of the great deconstructionists. So, you know, I, I mentioned Moses, I mentioned Plato, right, I mentioned right. the early church, but I yeah. think, I, I, th- I think where, where you can really locate it is, um, I'm, I'm looking at, at the Enlightenment era. I'm looking at Voltaire in France. When and I'm looking at the early part of the 19th century in Russia and some of these places. And so, what's going on? And now, you know, finally we catch up here. 
but you've got a you've got a populace who's looking at how problematic the monarchy is at how oppressive sort of the the aristocracy is and you're and they're looking at how church has now become embedded in that and there's a kind of a, a corruption in the church or just it's lame and so you get this out of that you you get kind of a uh, a liberal critique, but then the liberalism itself, I'm really familiar with this in Russia, that, that the liberal critique of, of the aristocracy gets co-opted by the aristocracy, and, and now it's just very posh liberalism, and they're, they're very skeptical of the church and all of that, but really nothing's changed. And so then you get in the mid-1800s, you get this progressivist movement that's really anti-liberal even. And they're like, you guys didn't change a thing. You know, you called for reforms, but really it's just all the same stuff. And then the, these progressives become more and more drawn to revolution, really, to burn it, a burn it all down thing. So what happens is in, in Russia, by the end of the 20th century, Dostoevsky is seeing, foreseeing a great, a, a great, um, disaster coming. Nietzsche is beginning to see it too. He's seeing the darkness that's going to come about. And and that so you go from this sort of corrupted church to a, a liberal reaction to a progressive response which becomes revolutionary and very, very violent. And so now we're now we're not just going to, you know, be more enlightened. We're we're going to be chopping heads off in Paris. We're, you know, I mean that happens early. You're you're going to be you're going to say, well, everything would be fine if we just got rid of religion. And so now we have Stalin instead and the gulags and the Mao, the Maoists and the, you know, all of that. So I, when I'm thinking about it, I, I'm thinking about something really even in the, is beginning in the 1700s. But now um, when it's, when all that stuff has come to roost here, in a way that starts emptying American churches like that, then that's more like in your era, right? And so um, Derrida was talking about deconstruction in, in the 60s, but he doesn't mean this. He's, he's talking about something else. And so um, maybe I'm seeing the fruit now of ideological movements that are, I'm looking at a 200-year span, but the, the, the stuff right now you could probably trace it using using peoples, uh, right? About when did the churches start emptying and why? Right. And so there's a new there's a new. It's gone to another level in America in the in, in the last twenty years. But it's you're so far behind <laughs> in, in some ways because <laughs> yeah, Christians yeah. all. I mean. Canada's already like Europe. It's a secular country. You know, right. we've got a little bit of a little bit of religion, but it, you're now just dipping under fifty percent attendance rates. Like, I don't know if we ever had fifty percent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we're all decrying the uh, the emptying of the churches that are still sitting at fifty percent. But uh, I remember for 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 my money, at least what we're going through now, I've. To me, and I don't know if I don't have any data to back this up, but I feel like it has its roots in the emerging church. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. Like, like McLaren yeah. and those guys who were, who, you know, we've had McLaren on the podcast and, 
And he's talked about how he felt like the like the emergent church failed. And myself and many others are like, I don't think so. I think it I think it morphed. I think it yeah, outlived its yeah. usefulness, whatever because it was always sort of ill-defined anyway, what the emerging church was. Yeah, and I, I think that's really fair. In fact, that might be some of the healthier the healthier aspects of deconstruction. Because when I when emergent church first, you know, came out, we're looking at you'd check out the book tables under emergent church at the at the at the big and it would be Richard Rohr, it would be Brian McLaren, it would be Rob Bell. Mm-hmm. And some of these folks, yeah, it'd be, yeah, yeah. And some of that, some of that, those guys are still, they're still playing out a kind. I like, um, I like what some of the language they use for it, right? Um, I think it's Roar says orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Yeah, that, exactly. That's all pretty healthy stuff. Uh, but that's not the only, that's not the only version going on right now. <laughs> No, no. I think for me too, and, and correct me if it, I mean, or don't, but if, let me know if, the, if this resonates with you too. I, something you said early on was when, when, my, when my personal experience with deconstruction begins to become prescriptive for other people, right? Like I expect them to either deconstruct like I did or to deconstruct at all. I begin to foist my expectations on them on, in something that is supremely, I believe, unique and individual. I think people approach this very, very differently. Um, but that's when it becomes a little heavy handed for me. Like if yeah. you're not deconstructing, then you're not taking this seriously kind of thing. Yeah, that's very good. And every story is so unique. And so that's, that's part of my um, impetus for writing the book is I was seeing like, on the one hand, I was seeing pastors getting so worried that there's nothing going on here except for people losing their faith and backsliding. And I'm like, you guys, <laughs> trying to coerce people back into the building after they've already fled from you is like, that's that's not going to work. And in fact, some of them needed to leave. And that Exodus is actually a positive story in the Bible, by the way. Right. <laughs> you know? yeah. And then, and so, so the, uh, what I call the hand-wringing pastors, you know, that, that just it would help them to understand that a lot of what's being deconstructed are barriers to faith and, and that a theological deconstruction around, let's say the retributive God is necessary. And, and in fact, it's, it's going to save people's faith if we, if we can manage it. But on the other hand, you've got what I call the happy clappy deconstructionists who just are you know, they've got their pom-poms out and they're like, it's, they just sound terribly evangelical to me because now you've got your, well, it, it's just deconstruction is your new testimony. And if you don't have a good testimony, you're not included in the party, just like before, you know? And I'm like, hey, yes, it's liberating for some, but there's a lot of traumatized people who are now feeling the alienation and they don't need your pom-poms. What they need is some empathy and someone to listen to the story and to maybe explore with them how to how to find an authentic faith again, and also to find community where where they know they can't go back to what it was. So that's hard work, but it it's good work, I think. Well, I guess a, a question from that would be kind of twofold. So we've seen this in other movements that I don't think lasted very long, like the Grace Movement or the Hyper Grace Movement or whatever you want to call it, right? And so. My question, I guess, is you find a lot of people who find another form of their religion or their faith, and then they just want to camp out there because that's their new, 
that's their new version of their religion, which I found within the, the grace movement was very toxic. So I guess the question is, how do we, how do we deconstruct our faith without attacking other people as they are de- deconstructing their faith? Because it seems like that's one of the bigger problems. Is like we like to point at people and say, well, you're, look how stupid you are. You aren't where I'm at. I'm so mm-hmm. enlightened. I'm so much better. <laughs> I, I have found the true calling of whatever this faith is, but we're all on different paths, right? Yeah. So, I mean, how do we, how do we even like acknowledge that we have to be respectful of their path at the same time that we're deconstructing maybe something that's in their path? Yeah. Well, that's, that's an important question. Um, one that we, my wife and I live right now. So she, you know, she's pastoring a church that would be seen as very progressive. They're, you know, gay affirming. They're, um, it's very, there's a sense of spontaneity, what we call low church. And I don't mean that in a belittling way. I just mean less formal. Meanwhile, I'm over in, in, I, I attend a monastery, the Orthodox church that's as high church as you can get, you know. And so my godfather gave us incredible wisdom on this. And he, he said, Brad, <laughs> Eden must be completely convinced that you are completely convinced that the path she is on is holy and that perhaps God set her on that path and it's not for you to dissuade her. That really went into both of our hearts and we ended up blessing each other on very, very different like journeys in terms of our... It's hard because we would love to do everything together, but there's I just can't walk her path, but I also can't call her off of it. Now, when I've thought through that, I'm like, well, if it's like that for me and her, why would it be different between me and others? So now I'm thinking... I really believe that, you know, I have a friend named Safi Kaskas, mm-hmm. dear, a dear brother, you know, yeah, Muslim. Yeah. And I believe that Safi knows that he's completely convinced that I am completely convinced that the path he is on is holy and that perhaps God put it on, put him on it and that it's not for me to dissuade him. When he knows that, I mean, that what that opens up is this massive space where um, Paul's words make a lot of sense. He he says, who are you to judge another man's servant? It's by his own mastery rises and falls. So I'm allowed to walk with him. I'm a, we're allowed to relate and we're, we, we pray together and we honor our otherness. So I don't know, like, I'm, how do we how do we avoid judging it? Just like almost you answered your own question, right? Like, <laughs> by by not judging, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which happens yeah. to be forbidden in the Sermon on the Mount, anyway. <laughs> right, right, right. But it just seems like specifically in our country, right? Specifically right now, that there is so much pushback by. It, this is where it gets really difficult for me because I could sit here all day. And just tear apart the religious right. Yeah, yeah. The the mega, the ultra conservatives, uh, and I, I. And to a part, I think I'm 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 okay to do that. I think I'm okay to call out anybody who is causing or calling for harm to other people. I, I I don't feel bad about that at all. But at the same time, am I doing more damage by not 
addressing them as human beings because I, I've decided that they are so far gone, which is, I'm, I'm assuming they think the same about me, right? That we can't even have a communication. We can't even talk. And, and that's, that's the, that's the issue that I have is like, how do we even, how do we even bridge that gap? Because it's so vast. Yeah, it, and seems vaster than ever, right? I, yeah, I feel like um, I f- I feel like there's such an important need to humanize the other, you know, and that to understand that the left right spectrum is the world system. That's the world that hates love. The left right, spe- the whole spectrum, even the center of the spectrum. The issue with the spectrum is it's about my rights and us and them. My rights on the right my rights on the left, and the deplorable ways that th- people in, on other parts of the script are, are hindering m- me from doing whatever the hell I want to do and whoever the hell I want to be. And so you end up with right-wing and left-wing fundamentalists it, because the whole, the whole spectrum gives you a script and you better follow it. And if you go off script, watch your back, you know. Then your allies are going to take you. So uh, I, um, I, I, I feel like that we need to. This is a hard thing to transcend that spectrum, but stay engaged. Seems almost impossible, but if there's one way to do it, it would be to have dear friends from other perspectives. And uh, so you know, when I started becoming especially anti-militaristic. I ended up in a deep friendship, deep friendship with Lieutenant Colonel David L. Jones. <laughs> so now I couldn't dehumanize the soldier even while I was pushing back against militarism. So that's part of it, right? Having actual relationships with people of different perspectives. But somehow we also got to get past this thing that I've arrived. <laughs> right. So, I was do, when I was doing itinerant stuff, I've really backed off now. I do maybe six trips a year. I was doing 40 a year or more. And what would happen is I'd go to one church and they'd say, well, aren't you glad that you found this gospel? Mm-hmm. And then I'd go to the next church and they, aren't you glad that you found this gospel? And, and what I discovered about six churches into this is all six of them were preaching a different gospel than each other. So I'm like, <laughs> I had to start saying, what gospel do you mean by this one? Um, <laughs> And, uh, and it right could be the great people and it could be the emergent people. It could be the roar fans. It could be the, and I'm like, wow, wow. We, so I just am very keenly aware I've not arrived. I, I, and it helps me to see I'm so in the Orthodox church. It's a great benefit to me to see how Kirill, the patriarch of Moscow, who leads a probably 100 million Eastern Orthodox Christians, is an absolute antichrist. He's just right. like right yeah. in bed with Putin. And he's and I'm like, okay, that's my movement. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess I'm not going to tell you how much better mine is than yours, because yours it probably isn't in, in, invading Ukraine right now. You know, so... <laughs> Yeah. Well, as far as comparisons go, you've got that going for you. That's yeah. <laughs> I, I'm glad for my Anabaptist roots. I don't know of any of them that have killed anyone except ones that didn't want to be Anabaptist anymore. So right. <laughs> well, and that that also brings to mind that you know just the idea, and you and you actually kind of hinted at it. So there's there's a definite difference between progressive and liberal or liberalism, right? Because you can be fundamentally liberal. 
and you can be fundamentally conservative. And, and you think that everything, but it seems like, and, and I know that people on both sides are going to say this is not true, but it seems like if you are, if you cut, kind of put yourself in this idea of being progressive, that you're willing to progress, to move forward, that that means that you're willing to listen and hear the, the ideas that are maybe foreign to you and that allow you to change your perspective as you move. That's what I kind of get from this kind of progressive movement. <laughs> you would hope that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but now some of my progressive acquaintances are the cruelest fundamentalists I know. <laughs> so what what happened? So it's funny, you get conservatives who have completely abandoned the conservation of our deepest, be- most beautiful roots. We've got liberals who are entirely illiberal of anybody who's not liberal. And now we've got progressivists who uh, w- would say we need to be tolerant of anybody except those we deem intolerant. And so like any of these movements can can begin to house Here's the issue: they, if if they become an ism, yeah, yeah, then as an ideology, um, the the beautiful things we intended in all of those movements, there's there's really beauty in them all, but but what we intended by it when it becomes an ism, that's the script, and then anyone off script is an enemy, and and if you can't beat your enemy in a in, in debate. Um, or propaganda, then you need to find ways to silence them. And so I see that happening. So it's also a bit different in America because we, you know, in Canada, we have, we have some stranger hybrids. We had what were called the red Tories. So Tory in, is often thought of as conservative. Red is thought of as uh, liberal. And so it's, to Americans, it'll sound like a contradiction. Or we, in the 60s, we had a political party called the Progressive Conservatives, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it was an effort. It was an effort to, to straddle these kind of isms. But now everyone who's straddling is getting groin injuries from it. So <laughs> <laughs> that's always a danger when you, when you attempt to straddle. Um, that there will be injuries. Uh, I, I, I really appreciated um, just just going to the first part of your book where you begin to talk about this process. And I liked your metaphor of, of childbirth. I wish I'd thought of it. But there's a sense in which this deconstruction thing, our, our, our good friend Michelle Collins in her book, um, Into the Gray, she likened deconstruction to, to a grieving process. Yes, yes. And I thought that was particularly insightful. Well, and for her, it really was, you know, like, so I love Michelle. And and one of the things about her is, you know, she's describing her story in a really profoundly, like a vivid way that people are going to resonate with if their story is anywhere near theirs. And if it's not, it can help them to empathize with those for whom it is. So grieving a death is quite different than birthing a baby in some ways, but they're both apt metaphors for different experiences and with some overlap. <laughs> yeah, I, so. I agree. Because as I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, well, for some people, and I, and I think it really, you know, in a lot of ways, it, 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 it has much to do with how, what was the impetus for your deconstruction, right? So some, I, I can speak for myself. Mine was pretty voluntary. I just, I just got to a place of cognitive dissonance that, that insisted that I dig and ask questions. And so uh, mine wasn't really didn't come as a result of any specific trauma or you know some some really bad thing that happened. Although there was plenty of that, um, but the impetus for mine was more like childbirth, 
than that. There was some, but there was some grief of, involved in that too. And there was still um, a sense where you grieve a loss of certain things. Certainly, um, the loss of certainty was one, you know, and I didn't even realize that was something I was grieving until much later. But a loss of certainty, a loss of some identity, right? If you spent 40 years of your life in this particular way of seeing yourself and suddenly that's stripped away, even if it's at your own doing, there's some loss there. So, but, but I, I don't know. I just, I, I, I like both of those metaphors. And I think there, I think you're right. There's, I think there is some, some, some overlap there too. John, John raised an important point earlier, just about how, like, if you, if you move out of one kind of movement or mindset or ism, it is, <laughs> it's tempting to just jump into another one. Oh, yeah. I do feel like, yeah, I don't want to go into alienation. I do want to find community, but I also want to leave behind the, the stuckness. <laughs> yeah. And so I don't want to become just stuck in a new, in a new movement. And, What's weird, uh, so so in attachment theory, and I'm thinking of guys like Gabor Mate. He he talks about the importance of of healthy attachments, like let's say to our our parents and so on, and to our communities. And so when when you get uprooted from that, it's pretty traumatic. And and I don't think we want people to be to be stuck in in isolation and. And alienation, that's it's just not healthy. But there there is that impulse then to reattach very quickly to the new thing. And you that's what I meant by you could go from right to left and still be a fundamentalist because you you fundamentally have the attachment. Or I was an evangelical and now I'm an ex-evangelical. <laughs> and it's like <laughs> yeah. I, I left the church 10 years ago. It's like, did you though? <laughs> you're still you're still pretty attached by your old bitterness and resentments and you're still getting your identity out of the movement you left, right? And so yeah. it's tricky. Yeah, it is tricky. Yeah. Right. I, yeah, I, I found, you know, as I was uh, writing this chapter that I did for a book called Parenting Deconstructed, that even though I left the church when I was 18, 19 years old and then got married, had kids outside the church, you know, God damn it, I mean, I use all the same crap on my kids that I use, that was used on me, even though I supposedly was out of the church. You know, I expected my kids to adhere to certain ideals that, uh, that we expect our kids to do, you know, to be the perfect children, to be respectful of their elders, you know, fill in the gaps, right? And, but I'd been out of the faith for a couple decades by the time I had kids. And well, at least, well, maybe not a couple, but at least, at least say 15, 20 years, uh, 15 years. So yeah, I mean, how do you even deal with that kind of trauma? Because, you know, Nat, Nat was saying that, you know, he's not sure that his, his deconstruction was built off trauma, which I would, I would venture to guess it probably somewhat is. I think there's some trauma there, but my, oh, no, hundred percent. I guess what I'm, what I'm envisioning is like a crisis of some kind that maybe like the result of that was an immediate like deconstruction sort of thing, you know. And I know people who have. I have plenty of spiritual trauma. Don't get me wrong. There's there's plenty of church <laughs> trauma in my background. Yeah, well, and, and it can be like there's the initial trauma of, or or just disappointment, disillusionment right. of your experience um, of your faith experience, and then a second one in leaving it. Right. So, and that could happen through people rejecting you, people thinking you're accusing you, you're the backslider, you're the, you know, whatever. 
And then, and then even like uh, another metaphor I use is mastectomies. Yeah, so my, my dear mom went through a mastectomy, right? And so you know there's a cancer that had to go or it will kill you. But then you go through the mastectomy and you don't have any guarantees of how much yourself you're going to lose. So I have all these stories of folks who are like, well, I left the church. That was great. You know, I hated that. And now, but now I didn't know I was going to lose not only church and community, but faith and Jesus and even meaning. And so suddenly they're like, but, but that's okay. Cause we're not meant to be meaningless. So, so at least you bought him out on, on nihilism at some point. But, um, John, you were, you, you, we have different, uh, phrases to describe this. You mentioned like leaving the faith. So what does that mean for you? Well, for me, um, and you know, I talk about this and, and, and our listeners have heard this from me. So I went through for me and people looking from outside might say, okay, well, that, that was just a day, but I, I had a pretty traumatic, um, intervention uh, that was done on me. And so the people that were involved, who I, I most of them I, I don't know anymore, but it was, it was rather traumatic. It was, uh, I, it was unexpected. I wasn't, my belief system, my, my connection to a, a, a God of, of any kind of power completely broke that day. So when I left the faith, I left the faith. Um, I mean, I no longer believed that God existed because if he did, he was a monster and I couldn't, I couldn't connect with that. You know, fast forward 30 some years and I, I you know tried, uh, I tried to reconnect to some faith, but with like fear that I would just jump right back into that same system. So um, I was very vocal. I was very open about, you know, this is, this is me trying to find a connection to a, a uh, to the divine. At the same time, it, it can't be that guy or that person or that thing that I left 30 plus years ago. It can't. Because if it turns out to be that's the guy or that's the thing, I, I don't want it. No. No, I mean, the thing about interventions and then the way that, that even becomes spiritualized language, you, you, you develop a construct of a God who violates human agency. And, that's, and, and that, that God is a bully. Um, the one who has left that God is heading closer towards who God is as such. You know, like, if God's not that, then atheism's closer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Right? And so, I mean, you might appreciate the what old Moses did in his anger. Uh, he melted down the golden calf, stirred it into some liquid, and made everybody drink it. And, (laughs) and then you can imagine their next bowel movement was, you know, and so I mean, gold brick. Yeah. 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 But, um, yeah. And so that what you have then is people, people like you begin to explore if there is a God who isn't like that, are there ways to think about and orient ourselves to, to that, even to name that one that that don't trigger the PTSD of the interventionist God, and so you've just used the word, uh, you know, the divine. Okay, so that'd be a that'd be a common one that I hear. That I'm like, okay, when I hear someone refer to to the divine, I I can hear some of 
what they're needing to deconstruct by using that word instead of the old trigger words. And I met someone just the other day and in a, um, they'd come to a meeting <laughs> in a church of all places where I was talking about the book and doing some Q and A. And this, this person was saying, you know, I was a, I was a, a, a musician, a worship leader in a major international uh, movement. So thinking about like being on the stage in front of thousands of people leading worship and they were, they became so disillusioned by, by the construct of God in that particular culture that, that they can have none of it. Right. And so they've moved from like, they're like, I can't, I, I, I've lost something, but I can't, what I can't refind it in a Christian culture. I can't. I don't want to find it in a church. I don't want to hear it in a sermon. I don't want it to have anything to do with Christians. And even the name Jesus is too painful. And I'm like, yeah, but you're here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and thank you. Thank you for overcoming all of those triggers to come to this, to talk in this meeting and speak up. And, and so I, I'm like, what do we, I had made a joke about, well, the universe doesn't love you. <laughs> you know, try gravity sometimes. It'll kill you on a good day. But she said, no, no, like I actually can relate to that word because it's not those other things. I'm like, okay, fair enough. I apologize for making light of it. She's like, no worries. And then I, I but she said, the thing that's killing me is I, I do know the loss. And I, I don't know where, where, where to find it. I'm like, well, you know, like where where is there any hint of connection? And it's like, oh, I picked up my guitar the other day after years because even the guitar had now become toxic because it was related to our culture, right? And now, and and she talked about um, the one who holds me. That's what I miss. I miss I miss the feeling of being held by the one. And I'm like, well, what if you pray to the one who holds you and just write songs for the one who holds you? And never mind the Christian culture you came out, like actually detach from that. And because I'm so confident that if we orient ourselves towards uh, any healthier, a, a healthier sense of the divine, of the one who holds us, the one who's not coercive and doesn't do traumatic interventions, obviously look at the news tonight, um, <laughs> then maybe, maybe some of what was lost can be refound without going back into the crap, you know? And so that ring true or, well, that, I mean, that, that, that resonates with me more than you would probably understand. Well, you might understand. So, uh, when I, when I came back into the church or the faith or whatever you want to call it, and I, and I decided that I had a, I wanted, I needed there were words I had to speak. I had to, I had to say things. I couldn't be silent on the sidelines. I was that guy the first 18 years of my life. I was just someone who went to church every waking moment of my life, but with no voice. So I came back with a voice, but I became back as a worship leader in a church. And Nat, Nat and I have talked about this too. Um, became very coercive. It's super easy to mess with people. When you're a worship leader, yeah, you, yeah, yeah, you play the right song at the right time. You say the right words within that right within that right 
chord progression or that minor key and you make everybody sad and you get them, I mean, you get that point where you're like, I made them cry at the right moment, right? And that's, and you, and you think you're doing some work for, for God. And so when I left all that behind again, two plus years ago, I have yet to pick up my instrument. I haven't because it's so connected to that, that, that gross feeling of um, what I did to manipulate people and make them feel something that I'm not sure was real, that I manipulated. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was real, all right, but real what, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that's not even always to say bad, right? Like, so to real, to real, yeah, that's a tricky one. I, m- my most powerful worship experiences are, are generally to David Gilmore. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I recognize that that's not just bad. <laughs> if he can use, if his guitar sends me an, into an altered state and he does it on purpose, I'm still not convinced that's bad. But I think, I think I can exactly relate to what you're talking about the power to manipulate as a, when I was a renewal leader, right? And the right. same thing. Yeah. Oh, they cried. So therefore that was God. Or at least they think so. I'm not so sure. Okay, time to detach. <laughs> so. Right. Yeah. But that, that's something that I am, I'm in the midst of right now is trying to figure out what does church look like for me? You know, and I, and I know I'm, I'm using church in a very generic term in a very generic way, but because when I, what I, what I want and what I think human beings need and what I keep cautioning my deconstruction friends against is any sort of complete disconnection. We're not meant to be disconnected. We need to find ways to authentically connect with one another. We need to find ways where we can authentically have communion or community. But I think so much of church is predicated on, on false narratives that it becomes, they become inauthentic. And so the community is predicated on as long as you're saying the right things and as long as you're willing to participate in a certain way, then you can be part of the community. Well, that's not, that's not authentic, right? Um, and you'll be excised if you do it differently. We're going to need to be very open to new forms. I don't want the forms to be just like any, so, so vague that they're nothing. <laughs> I even want to be able to say, yeah, where two or three are gathered having a beer. Guess what? They're just having a beer. That's not church. <laughs> but, but okay. Then what? It, what does constitute church? And I, I would, I would think some kind of grace connection, grace exchange. I sorry to use a trigger word like grace, but I mean like a real being present to one another in in a kind of real communion and and uh, and that we've discovered that that doesn't always look like the brick and mortar service that we have identified with the local church. Yeah. I mean, I would totally resonate with, with the person you were speaking about, right? Where they said, like, I, I, I was a worship leader too, and in a fairly large church. And now that I find myself unchurched again, there's just no way, you know what I mean? There's no way I can go back to that, even though I could pick up my guitar tomorrow and have a job in any number of churches in town and go back to what I, what, what I know how to do really well. But it, it, it turns my stomach to even consider going back into that time. Cause exactly what John said is true. There's so much of that that's performative, right? And I'm just so leery of the stage. I'm so leery of the platform anymore. 
because I was seduced by it for a very long time. And I, so I reckon, you know, I still recognize that that seductive power of being elevated somehow can still pull, even though, even if you don't want it to. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely open to new expressions of that. Well, for my part, you know, I, I, I've been quite open that I, I found my primary fellowship is, uh, has been with, uh, the 12 steppers. I just, I think something good is going on there in terms of continually challenging the ego and, um, and ego attachments to self-importance, but also to self-pity, to self-hatred. Anything that starts with a self there is likely self-ish, self-centered, self-will, all of that stuff. And they, they're ruthless with that in a way that protects your heart. Where I, that they go after your ego without conde- without condemning. <laughs> I'm like, how is that possible? Well, it's a it's a miracle, is what it is. So I'm I'm grateful for finding that expression, but I, I know others uh, others are experimenting these days. We had to because of COVID too, you know. Oh, absolutely. So even even people who said, you know, if if you're not in a pew on a Sunday, you're not in church, and if you're not in church, that's not the kingdom. Suddenly, they've got online services, and because they needed to, yeah. And it's like, well, if that counts, does it still count? Now right. that, and, <laughs> yeah. and if that still counts, then I bet you a lot of stuff. We, we if we'd be creative with it, we'll be we'll be good. Yeah, I agree. Well, I realize uh, that you, 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 I think you've got to get going. You said um, I w- we want to be respectful of your time, so uh, maybe we'll just wrap it up by saying: first of all, this book is amazing. It's available everywhere, as as far as I know right now. The audio book has been completed, right? Yeah, the audio book's out now. You can get it. It's really good um, uh, because like Boyd Barrett is the narrator and he's a professional voice actor, but he also knows my heart. And oh, so nice. when I'm emotional, he's not acting emotional. He's actually emotional. <laughs> and, right. and also he does like, he can do accents for some of the people I'm quoting. It's like really cool. So... Normally, people want the author to to do it, but I don't have the skills or the technology, or uh, you know, to get through a page. And, and <laughs> generally, when he's now, this is like his fourth book he's done for me, and and everyone says the audiobook's actually better than the the, the paperback. So he, nice. you don't lose anything by having him as narrator. That's what I'm saying. That's great. So if there's those who prefer that, then like, don't be afraid to go to find it on on Audible or wherever you can find it. Yeah. Well, it's, to me, it was, uh, I'll, I'll tell you my little, my little anecdote here. I, you know, I wrote a book and you graciously wrote, wrote the forward for it. But I was in the middle of writing that book when I heard you were writing this book and I just about stopped writing it. <laughs> I'm like, ah, well, I did Brad, the same thing. I Brad's almost writing, stopped well, writing. <laughs> Brad's writing this book. Well, I don't need to write it. Brad's going to yeah, write the yeah, definitive yeah. book on deconstruction. <laughs> I, I was half done my book when Brian Zahn's book, um, yeah. When Everything's on Fire came out. I'm like, well, that's that. I guess we'll shut her down. But um, I had to get done and fulfill the contract yeah. and then realized actually they're good in Antiphony. You know, yeah, no, and I, they're very different books. Um, mm-hmm. But actually, yours was nail number two. Brian's was nail number one because that was. Her, I said, "Oh well, crap!" Well, Brian's writing book. Oh shit! Now Brad's right. Okay, well, there's not going to be much left to say. But our books are very different, and and yeah, <laughs> and Ho- hopefully there won't be much left to say. We can move yeah. on to other topics, right? <laughs> Lord help us. I hope we can. Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, I do appreciate. Um, I, I I appreciate. Well, I've always appreciated um, how you put things on paper and how you say things. And I just appreciate your heart and all of this. 
So uh, thank you for being a good friend and a good friend to the show and a good friend to John and I personally. Um, can't thank My you pleasure, for, guys. I always man. enjoy time with you and, and, and um, yeah, bless you, whatever that means. In the state of Texas, when we say bless his heart. Um, yeah, I know what a, that means, though. That's, that's not a good thing, so I won't say bless yeah, your heart. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll just say blessings <laughs> on you. All right. Thanks. You betcha. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.